This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Bruce Kramer. You can download the MP3 of our produced show with him at onbeing.org. Now, I and you do, you do go by Ev, right? Ev. I do. Okay. I do. Okay. I'll answer to just about anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Except for me, you never answer to me. <laughs> <laughs> the truth comes out. So just say how you're going to be comfortable. If you're okay. more comfortable, be back. And we'll just put this where it's... Where are we going to put it? Um, oh, I think we can share we can this. Evie, would you give me another slurp, please? You want to refill before we get started? A little more water to pop it up? Because it's about halfway down. Okay. We yeah, can always pause. So. We'll just top this one up. Okay. Um, so I'm. I know we set aside an hour and a half, but we'll we'll aim for an hour and, you know, between an hour and hour and a half. But we'll aim to be pithy. <laughs> um, do you have any questions of me before we start? Anything you want to know or say? Please don't ask me, who are you and why are you here? <laughs> Can I ask um, you some Actually, version? no. Um, I, think, I think you're aware that um, it probably, I'll probably need to pause mm-hmm. from time to time. And um, unfortunately, with wearing the BiPAP, which is um, necessary... It makes M's and N's come out kind of funny. So if you feel like we missed something, let me know, and I'll try to be more. Well, Chris can work magic with... Okay. (laughs) He has filters, you know. I have a cold. I say, put in your cold filter. At the end of the interview, you say seven M's and seven And then he'll just splice them in. Yes, (laughs) we're just going to use these for... Yeah. (laughs) Don't worry about that. Okay. Don't worry. Um, Do you have a, a signal... It. Would it be distracting for him for me to give him a drink? No. Or? The great thing mm-hmm. about what we do is it's long form, and we will edit this. And, and and I even say that when it's not about stopping and starting, you know, it gets to be a real conversation. It doesn't have to be linear. So if you want to go back to something, mm-hmm. so don't hesitate to say, "I need a break" or to take a drink, and I'll do the same. And we just and just don't even think about it. We edit. We'll we'll translate it into. Into radio. I mean, I know you've done this with Kathy, but it's quite a different format that they have. So it I'm is not, a different format. Yeah, and I'm not sure how different their process right, is. Right, right, it is. And, um, and I'll admit, I have probably the same anxiety for this as I had when I first started with her. Oh, well. So, yeah. <laughs> so throw me a couple of soft curves at first. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. All right. Well, let's just, let's just jump in. Chris, are, you, are we okay? All right. Um, oh, I keep writing Mariah. I'm like, who is that? Um, well, so you, you, you may have heard our show before, and you may know that I always start with the same question with everyone. Um, and, and about the, I mean, I like to hear about this religious, religious or spiritual background of somebody's life, somebody's childhood, however you would define that. Um, I, you know, I was really struck. I'm, I'm very struck and moved by in your writing and also in the the other radio work you've done by um how you reflect in profoundly practical ways but also i think profoundly spiritual ways about 
living with ALS um, and living in general. Um, and you know, you you've used language like I I was reborn into a new life, christened by ALS. So all of that um, made me curious about um, if you know if you trace that kind of language or how you think about that spiritual sensibility you have now that you might trace back to your childhood, perhaps in surprising ways. Well, I think the biggest surprise is um, my own religious background. As I was raised Methodist. Um, I continue to attend a Methodist church. I think we, uh, together, when we were living overseas, uh, we often uh, attended ecumenical churches. You're not going to find the, the big churches over there. And um, I think, really, the childhood experiences I had really drove me away from religion and drove me away from spirituality for quite a long time. It wasn't until, um, really, we moved to Egypt and lived in Egypt, where you are rubbing shoulders with people who have calluses on their foreheads because they're so religious. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you are in a, uh, an environment like that, it makes you stop and think a lot about just what is it that I believe and just what is it that that informs my life underneath this life that I'm projecting out. So um, after we had left Egypt and we moved to Thailand, we became much more aware of um, the fact that Thailand is a Buddhist country, uh, Theravada Buddhism, not Zen Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And so that's a slightly different, more hierarchical way of approaching things. But... um, when we came back, I came back to the States, I had this very deep sense that there is, there is something much greater than me, much greater than uh, the, uh, the world that we live in. And if you want to call that God, that is just fine with me. I'm very comfortable with that. But uh, I now hang out with people who call that all kinds of different things. Mm-hmm. When you come down with something like ALS, come down. Um, When you are afflicted, supposedly, what you begin to realize is that um, something like ALS is so elegant. It does what it's supposed to do. And um, you can fight it. And I I actually uh, found myself at first trying to take on those fighting metaphors. Mm. But at a certain point, I realized that if I embraced it, there would be a spiritual gift that was far beyond the person that I am. And uh, I have to say, in many ways, ALS has increased my faith in the spiritual. Yes. Yes. So... So you, let's well then let's let's just let's go let's let's do that let's go there. Um, I mean, well, you know, in 2010, um, you were 54, the age I am now, um, and I, you know, you you write you you just completed your second year as the dean of the College of Education, Leadership, and Counseling. Your kids were grown and settled. You know, you wrote, "We had two cats. I was a bike commuter." 
Ev and I spent a month in Indonesia. We drank a lot of wine, and we ate a lot of fish. 2010 was a great year. Um, and then you got this diagnosis, essentially, as, as you described it, which helped me understand this. You know, your motor neurons were dying. Um, and you, you wrote that after the diagnosis, you realized you had unknowingly prepared for this moment your whole life. So start by just talking about what you, what you mean when you say that. This is a hard one for me to talk about. Uh, I come from an addictive family. That particular experience means that you become quite, uh, quite attuned to chaos. You don't know which mob you're going to wake up to that day. And so um, the skills that I developed, um, especially as the oldest son, were about how to quiet things down, how to bring some kind of order. Of course, those skills didn't come easily. Um, I started out, I I know that when I was in junior high, I was quite a hellion and uh, very difficult to deal with, but I can see why now. The interesting part of all of this is that my mother, my grandfather, um, were musicians. And I knew that when my mother sat down at the piano, things would be orderly. They'd Mm -hmm. be quiet. We would know that things were going to be okay. So I became a musician. That's Mm -hmm. where I started. And as a musician, especially if you're looking at um, being a conductor, your whole your whole being is about making order out of chaos. Mm. You've got to get everybody on the you same know, page. I, I know that's true, but I don't think we often think of music. No, we in the don't first think of it that way, as, do we? We we as ordered usually, and yeah, right. We usually think of it as um, we think of it as someone having this tremendous vision for music, mm-hmm. and that everybody falls in line. Mm-hmm. But the best music that I've ever made is not because I had this great vision, but because the people that were singing with me were, um, they also had thoughts and a sense of it. And so we had to negotiate just what are we going to do here. Mm-hmm. That, that musicality, um, it introduces aesthetics into your life. And I began to feel that life really in order for it to mean something, it had to be beautiful. That there had to be a sense of beauty around it. That particular um, assumption has been very helpful with ALS. Hmm. You, um, ALS comes in. It treats each one of us very differently. I started with uh, a drooping toe. But I have friends who started with ALS in their faces. They die more quickly. It's harder to eat. Um, and, and ultimately, it gets the body, the whole body. Right. It imposes an order onto the chaos. And the fact that I can perceive that order has been very helpful in negotiating this life. Hmm. Is that, is that what you meant when you said a minute ago that it's it's very elegant what happens? Yes, mm-hmm. it is. It knows um, what it's doing. 
I don't think people think of disease as elegant. Uh-huh. But the fact is, and I, I, I wrote a blog about where I, um, I quoted from Job. And what I found in that, as I was going through the Job story, is really, in a lot of ways, that story is about the fact that things will be what they will be. And you can have faith in that. You can have a strong faith in the fact that we will be born, we will live, and we will die. And ALS, with the way that it goes about what it does, it's inexorable. It doesn't stop. There is no cure. Mm -hmm. The healing that you are able to gain with ALS comes mostly because you've embraced the fact that it is what it is. So um, that sense of chaos and then that sense of order was very helpful to me. Mm -hmm. But I have to add in a third thing. And so we should add in the secular humanist, John Dewey, which is, um, if you were with me at St. Thomas, everybody called me a Dewey head. But John Dewey... Because you quoted him as because a, when I you were Because I quoted him a, a lot. Uh-huh. I read everything he wrote. Right. And, uh, and what he helped me to do was to um, contextualize, to see things for how they are here, and not to overgeneralize them out into a world where, really, we, we tend to do that way too much. We don't honor the individuality. So I found that with those three things, they're very helpful in negotiating this disease. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I think you were you were just you've been you've touched on a bit already is um, you were confronted with uh, kind of archetypal American ways of dealing with crisis and problems. Um, you know, you've talked about this this irrational belief that we are in control of how we live and die. The enable bodied fix and cure mentality. And I think you put that in a really, I mean, these are things I've thought about before. You, you put that in a really interesting perspective in terms of that this is part of our fight and flight mechanism. I mean, Americans may have brought this to a high art form, our sense of control and fixing things. But that essentially, you know, say there's something very seductive to us, just physiologically, just as creatures, about adopting the fighting lexicon but that ALS does not does not allow that cancer won't either you're right you know in fact I don't know a disease I don't know of any physical uh, condition where fighting it um, is really going to work and we use that terminology all the time you read obituaries she fought the good fight. Yeah. He really, and we use the language of battle. We do, and, and it's militaristic. Mm-hmm. And, we, and what struck me, and I had some help with this, I, uh, I had this very funky healer call me, a friend of a friend, and she and, uh, it was late at night here. She was living in Hawaii. 
And she called, and um, I said, well, let me tell you about what's going on. And she said, oh, no, I don't need you to. I, I just need you to be quiet right now. This is a very weird thing to do on a telephone, right? <laughs> and so I'm very quiet. And finally, she says, you are so angry. You have to forgive your body, or this is not going to go well. Mm. What a revelation. And, you know... When truth hits you, it's like cold water. It wakes you up. And I realized I was so angry that I had this disease, that I had done everything right. And here I was, reaping the rewards of doing everything right. And you were also kind of, you know, 54. We now think of that as the middle of life, right? Right. Even even 15 years ago, you were heading into retirement, but now we think you're starting your second chapter. That's exactly right. And uh, and I had plans. Yeah. But when she said to me, you have to forgive yourself, I don't know, that, that just really struck me. And then I realized I was... I wanted to wrestle, I wanted to fight, I wanted to hit out. And that wasn't going to work because the only person I was going to hurt was me. Mm. So in, in, the, uh, in that process, and I didn't come to it completely, but I realized that um, really we're given a choice when we are told something like this. You have ALS or... Um, I don't love you anymore. Or you know, there are all of these conditions that make us human. Mm-hmm. But I realized that the choice is you either embrace it or you reject it. And if you reject it, then you go into denial and anger and depression and all of those things that we know really don't work. And so I chose to embrace. Yeah. They don't work, but they are instinctive. I mean, I, I, and even while, you know, as you've shared how you've walked through this and how the two of you have walked through this, it, it makes so much sense, right? It's clearly right. But it's almost like, you know, and again, it's very helpful if we think about this fighting language as part of our you know, our lizard brain, our, our survival mechanism, you're, you're almost calling, you've almost called yourself, and you're almost talking about kind of an, evol- kind of an evolution that, that we call ourselves in these moments of crisis and illness to our faculties of, of reasoning, um, <clears throat> our, our capacities for reflection and making purpose and meaning. But we haven't always, I don't think we do traditionally or instinctively put those things together. But you're getting to something where, to me, if you, if you tie all of these things up, I'm an educator. <laughs> and what do educators do? We change people. And, I, I mean, I was a high school principal. I had, I can't tell you how many times... I would sit down with a kid who had done something really stupid and I would talk them through the fact that you've got this great big giant neocortex and you don't have to follow those other things, those instincts. 
And so in a lot of ways, I found myself talking to myself, you've got this great big neocortex, use it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a place um, where you write that as an educator, you had learned the difference, of course I love this, between opening to possibilities through questions and closing creativity with answers. And that then, as ALS became part of your experience, you know, the question you, were, you started to be able to ask to turn that was, how, how shall we grow into the demands of what is beyond us? Which is a different question from, how shall we fight this? Exactly. I think we're done here. You just you just captured it. <laughs> well, uh, and I, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, but I've been asked. Um, I've been asked often, "What do you think your legacy will be?" And my answer to that is that legacy is an act of ego. We, we think we're going to leave something of ourselves. But education is an act of faith. It's faith in the fact that human beings have the capacity to grow. And that as humans, we could become better. We could become more compassionate. We could become more understanding. And no matter what it is that afflicts us, that affliction can become a part of us that makes us better people. I realize on, on one level this sounds incredibly idealistic, but the fact is is that as humans, we're given, the, we're given ideals. We're able to project that, and it makes us better. So I, I feel that um, I feel that in the end, by focusing in on what does it mean to be a teacher, what does it mean to be an educator, and going back to your very first question, what does it mean to have faith? Those things suddenly, you you're not angry with ALS anymore. You may be angry at the circumstances. There are, I, I will admit to you, there are days where I just melt down. I've had it. I, I don't like having everything done for me. But the fact is, is that most of the time, I perceive great beauty and, and great joy. And a lot of that comes from having ALS. I don't think I could go back. It's a huge statement, really. Yes, I, I've said it to friends, and they look at me like I'm nuts. But um, what I've learned in the last four years, I, I just don't think I could give that up. It's, it's too profound. It's brought me much closer to my own spiritual center. It's brought me much closer to my children much closer to my spouse, my friends. We use the word love a lot. We say, I love you a lot because of ALS. Mm. If I 
just really curious how you hear that. And is that? I have to agree with Bruce. I, I don't think I'd go back. I think I've learned so many things from this experience. Um, I don't think in 54 years I truly understood the suffering. And once this happened to us, I was amazed at how I didn't, I just didn't pay attention to all the suffering going around. You mean before this? Before this, Mm -hmm. before ALS. I had my perfect little life. I was really enjoying it. We were both enjoying it. Very busy. And I just didn't see that. And I hope, I, I would never want to go back to that blindness and so I hope I know right now I don't have the opportunity, but I'm hoping that in the future at some point I'm going to be able to give back in some small way the amazing love and devotion that we've been showered with through this experience. So I wouldn't trade that in. You know, when you say that you didn't see the suffering... Um, and you know, Bruce, Bruce, you write about this one place. You write in your in your book about the look, which you you started getting, and you realized that is we do all the time, and you'd probably done it too. And it, you know, again, that's instinctive. I, I mean, I I don't know. Do we not see the suffering, or can we not bear to see the suffering? Right. I mean, what you've learned. I think maybe we see it, but we don't feel it. Mm-hmm. I can see it, I can cluck my, you know, oh, that's so terrible, mm-hmm. but I never felt it. And it's so terrifying to feel it. It is terrifying. Yeah. But once you've experienced it, I think it opens you up to so much other suffering and, and knowing that you do have an opportunity to help. And it sometimes is something very simple, but we've just had that demonstrated to us in so many ways. It's really a different way to live. Can you can you say such just a little bit about what the about the look and about what, yeah, I, how you saw I that? I was going to you, say that yeah. um, we should probably explain that. And I think first of all, um, we don't recognize how privileged we are as able-bodied people. Right. We uh, and particularly uh, in our culture, we tend to see disability um, as a punishment, as uh, that there's a reason for that. And the reason I'm not disabled is because I didn't do whatever it was. Really? That, do, you th- do you think that, that that's in us, even if it's not consciously I do. I really do. I think, we're, I think if you look at the way that... Um, for example, in, tw- in tw- 2011, we went back to Thailand. It was kind this of our. This was after your diagnosis. After my right? diagnosis. Yeah. Um, it was kind of our farewell tour. We knew we weren't going to be able to travel for much longer, so we went back to Thailand. And I was on a cane at the time. I should have been on a walker, probably should have been in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. But I was on a cane, and. You know, Thailand is not set up for disability at all. And yet, we would get out of a cab, and they would see that I was struggling. 
struggling to walk. And invariably, two guards or two men or two people would come up, and if there were a lot of stairs to take, they'd grab me under each shoulder and take me up the stairs. Mm-hmm. It, I, I just can't imagine that happening here. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that people are actually looking for uh, a way to honor the fact that you are still there, you're still present. And uh, what I found with the look was that I, I suddenly had to face in myself that I had ignored disability. I had basically, and, and it was basically uh, a statement of there but for the grace of God go I. Right. And um, I had ignored it to the point where um, I, I was defining people by their disabilities. Yeah. And so the look was looking through them looking around them, but not actually looking at them. Right. Somewhere you said the look is neither fight nor flight, but right. essentially choosing not to be present, That's denying right. the present. It, it's just a way of saying, I don't have to be conscious of this. And it's a huge privilege to be able to say that. Right. Now, with um, no ability to move my arms or legs, with the fact that all of my breathing muscles are gone, so I have to wear this machine just just to live. I recognize that uh, I recognize that look in other people. Mm-hmm. You can see them just the, it it goes through its own stages, and um, I, I will admit sometimes it's hard not to uh, not to play with that a little bit. To, uh, really? Well, you know, um, I have been known to say to people, don't worry, I'm not going to die right now mm-hmm. um, because we're together. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, <laughs> gosh, I, I, you actually perceived that's what I was thinking. I hope he doesn't die. Okay, well, so let me, let me ask you this really <laughs> practical question. Yeah. <laughs> what would you, let's say, let's say the look is something that comes naturally. But someone hears this, and next time it happens to them, they find themselves instinctively giving the look, or looking away, really. What would you like them to do instead as they engage that beautiful neocortex? Well, I think, first of all, you acknowledge. Tell me why you're here. Tell me what you're, tell me your story. Mm-hmm. And that story becomes as important as the story that you carry with your able legs and your ability to open doors. Um, you know, I don't. I, I'm hoping that just in these few moments together, you you see that there's really nothing wrong with the way I'm thinking, and yet people will bend down to me and they'll speak. In a really loud voice, because you know I probably can't understand them right, right. because I'm in a wheelchair. Right. We don't have to do that, mm-hmm. and and I think part of it is our own discomfort, part of it is our own fear, and the fear part we really don't like to acknowledge. So if I were if I were asking you to 
do something practical, I would say treat me the way you would treat anyone else. But also recognize, I'm going to need you to open the door for me. I may need you to push my wheelchair. That's just part of the way things are. Mm-hmm. Mm. I want to ask you about this um, distinction you make between disease and dis-ease, which you separate into two words, dis-ease. Um, and dis-ease as something that is ordinary. Could I take a break? Yes, please. Absolutely. It's not that I can't answer the question. No, 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 no. It's okay. No, this is a good. I'm just finding myself. This is a good time. Really it's a good place to right take now, a break. So. Oh, absolutely. Oh, we were supposed to take that away. Oh yeah, no. That that was to let Krista in the door, and then I was supposed to. That was my job to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have many jobs. Yeah. It's tough to have them all. I think I'm going to sleep well tonight. So. <laughs> Are we going to wear you out? It will, and, uh, and it's just fine. That's oh, okay. It's a real gift. I'm ready with you. Okay. So. Well, so, so here's something you wrote. Uh, as, I, as I began to comprehend the meaning of dis-ease, the meaning of ALS... I could see the physical breakdown looming on my horizon, but dis-ease revealed so much more. Hard to pin down, hard to define, dis-ease emerged as an ever-evolving framework that went where I went, did what I did, was as I was, always in the room like oxygen or fire, and not just for me, but for everyone. What is it? When I was first diagnosed, I very deliberately uh, decided how I was going to tell people about ALS. I, uh, I started with a very small circle, and I expanded that circle uh, in a very deliberate way. Until finally I sent a letter to my faculty and explained to them what was going on. And, if, and of course, I mean, you could imagine how that would affect you if you received a letter like that. Even the people that thought I was a jerk as a dean, <laughs> it affected them. Hmm. What I found, as I told people about ALS was they began to tell me about ALS. Mm. They began to tell me about 
the ALS they carried. They began to tell me about the struggles that they were working through too. And I think that they told me not because um, it was a way of, of cleansing or a way of, but it was a way of saying, we carry these things. And I want you to know I'm carrying something just like you are. And what I began to realize is that these things that we carry, these struggles, emotional, physical, spiritual, that these struggles were, were they weren't transparent, but that ALS revealed them. In, that, in those moments together, if I could teach myself to be quiet, to listen, what I found was that these struggles were informative. They actually, they actually helped define the pathways that each of us we're taking and we and we had absolutely no expectation that these things were going to be cured a person whose marriage was blowing up a mm-hmm. friend they didn't expect that their marriage would suddenly come back together they realized that this experience was going to be with them for the rest of their lives no matter what I knew that I would not be cured of ALS, Mm -hmm. although there are a lot of people out there who will tell you they can do it. Mm. But I knew I wasn't going to be cured. It would be with me for, for as long as I lived, as long as this body continued to, to live. It became, it became almost an acknowledgement that in the room, in this room right now, as we are, are sitting here, each one of us holds almost a personage sitting next to us, abiding in the, in the gut, living in our breath. And that personage defines who we are in so many ways. And what I, what I kept hearing was that you can't run away from this. If you embrace it, it will teach you. It will open you. And dis-ease became my name for that, Mm. for that phenomenon. Mm. And then there's disease. And I I, I think I write in some place, disease is a lie. The medical model is a lie. We will never be cured. If you have a cavity in your tooth, they'll fill it, but you still have that cavity. If you have cancer, that cancer may go away for a while, but you will always carry the personage of cancer with you. And so if you buy into the disease story, you will only be frustrated. You will only be disappointed. And ultimately... I think you will feel ill-used by life itself. 
But if you understand that there is this phenomenon where cancer, where relationships that go awry, where, where um, ALS, where all of these things become a way to see the world, open up the world to you, that you are given a great gift. And so when Ev tells you she wouldn't go back, mm-hmm. when I tell you I wouldn't go back, it's because we actually passed through the fire and, and the ice of disease and embraced the fact that this is the greatest teacher we will ever know. You know, um, recently in a, a number of different kinds of conversations I've had, the language of vocation has come up. And, um, and I find that so much more helpful and life-giving a word than career, which I think we kind of collapsed vocation to. And I, so this has been on my mind, and then I was reading you. You know, career kind of ends up being the way we measure ourselves in the world. Obviously, one thing that happened to you with ALS is you you had to end your career. But I feel like the way you, it, like what you discovered and what you've lived into is, I mean, again, this phrase, you know, your your vocation became the fullness of what it meant to, this phrase you used, the be alive while dying. And And what you're also pointing out is that I mean, that also defines all of us, us, right? We are all alive (laughs) while moving towards dying one day. But you are so present to that. You are so smart. I'm such a sucker for smart. Um, Vocation, vocare, to be called... ALS calls me. Disease calls us. And so you're right. It's not it's not the career. It's not the the amount of money. It's not the fact that you do this remarkable uh radio program that you do. It's the calling that allows you to draw out of people just what is it that is the metaphysic of being a human being? And in a way, that's what disease is. Hmm. It is that overarching metaphysic of humanity. What calls us? What keeps us alive? I am only present because I embraced that call. But I didn't reject it. Um, in the book that's coming out, and I, I'm not pitching it. I just it's okay. in, the, in the book that's coming out, we'll pitch it for you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, I I talk about the fact that um, you know what? I'm going to have to stop again. I'm really sorry. I'm just out of air. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> No thanks. I just need to just need to catch my breath, babe.
Okay. okay. Sorry. It's okay. No, really, we can stop as much as you want. I, I know, but um, yeah. I hate to stop in the middle of a thought. Yeah. Do you want to pick it up again? Um, no, we're okay. If you, do you remember where you were? You were yeah. going to talk about a part of the book. Yeah. Yep. Just tell that story. In the book that um, is coming out in April, I, I talk about how um, I talk about how Elizabeth Kubler Ross, who I have great respect for, creates a false sense of power. And she was this psychologist who created the. You kind of named the stages of grief right, and dying. Right, five stages yeah. of grief. Yeah. And, yeah. and she did it by observing people who were dying. Right. And so, um, and in many ways, you know, she, uh, she lost a lot of her uh, professional uh, esteem by, or by her colleagues because she stepped over a couple of lines, mm-hmm. spiritual lines, mm-hmm. I have great respect for her for that. But these five stages of grief, the the idea that you deny, and then you bargain, then you're depressed, then you go into this kind of latent, uh, you're angry, you're, and then finally you accept. What, what that to me represents is this sense of false human control. If we name it, we can control it. Oh, I must be at the anger stage. Right. Oh, I'm going. Right, I'm bargaining right. here, you know. Right, right. But what I really, what I really came to realize, was that if you embrace this disease that you are given, acceptance and gratitude are not far behind. And if you reject it, you'll find yourself swirling around. Between depression and denial and anger. Back and forth through those back stages. Back and forth and back and forth and back yeah. and forth. So, in a lot of ways, for me, ALS became a clarion call. Mm. Just as Ev was talking about how she felt that she wasn't aware of suffering around her, what ALS did for me was, was so clearly say to me, Wake up, look around, and recognize this big, messy, beautiful humanity that we have been given. It's a gift. But it's not a gift if we wall ourselves off from it, if we are fearful of it, if we don't embrace the struggles that come with it. And those struggles only get harder and harder. Mm. So... When you use the word vocation, I I think that actually is what disease is doing for us. And it's wiping away this false sense of control that just because I can name something, I have some power over it. Mm-hmm. I have no power over it. Mm-hmm. Um. I want to talk about yoga, which you have started to do, which I love also and have found very transformative in my circumstances. Um, You started doing adaptive yoga with Matthew Sanford after your diagnosis in these last couple of years. 
Um, yeah, talk about what that's meant to you. Matt and I have become quite good friends. And I think part of it is um, because we don't have to explain things to each other. We're both uh, profoundly... And, and he's quadriplegic from... That's right. From a car accident from a car when he accident. was 13. He, yes. he's, um, we both have profound disabilities. Yeah. And he's also a very renowned yoga teacher. Yes, he is. For both adaptive yoga and able-bodied people. He's um, actually Ev likes to study with him in his regular classes yeah. because he's such a good yoga teacher, mm-hmm. just plain mm-hmm. old yoga. But um, I think I came to yoga because Ev took me there. She said, I think it'll make you feel better physically. So I went. And the first yoga class that I was in, I suddenly realized it was music. That it was, was music. It was music all over. Huh. And I realized that there was a depth to this mind-body relationship mm-hmm. that, they were, that they were trying to teach us that is very similar to the mind-body relationship that one has, especially as a singer. So, for example... When I would work with a choir, I would ask them to, to ground their feet, mm. to be mm. very present. And as you breathe, breathe into your toes. And as you exhale into this tone, let this tone go out the top of your head. Does this sound <laughs> like yoga to you? I never thought about that, yes. Yeah, well, so there mm-hmm. I am, and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. oh my God, I, I'm practicing music again mm-hmm. I'm a musician again mm. because by that time I'd lost the ability the physical ability to conduct mm. but then there's more to it than that there's the, this, the concept of peeling an onion um, I, think, I find that more useful than talking about koshas but um, peeling an onion, the idea that as you are physically engaging and mindfully engaging that physicality, as you are recognizing the energy that flows through you, out of you, into others, and others' energy flowing into you, that there is more to it than coming to um, a moment of bliss. On Wednesday, I had a yoga class, and uh, my teachers, it now takes at least three people to help me to do anything resembling a, uh, an asana. Mm-hmm. But my teachers, we were, we were working on this, this one pose, and one of my teachers said, now just let your shoulders move forward toward me. I burst into tears. And this happens to me often with yoga, but this time it was so profound. Because you couldn't move your shoulders forward? No, no? because I was overwhelmed with this center that I could perceive, that I had delved deep into something that 
I didn't even know was there. That was equal parts gratitude and sadness. Those two things just welled up, and there I was crying. And um, as I thought about that, and I thought about the fact that this had come through this this physical, mindful, energetic activity, I realized that once again, it was it was that call, hmm. that that sense of being present, being here, and I'll be here until I'm not. It was that sense of connection that makes us so human. And so, yes, the physical activity is really good for me. Mm-hmm. But you could, I think you could imagine how easy it would be to feel cut off from humanity with a disease like ALS. And instead, I am humanity. I, I also think that, you know, I've, I've had conversations with Matthew as well, and uh, including on the radio show. The thing about yoga, even the physical postures are about stilling one's, about inner calm and I mean, I mean essentially the early originally those physical postures were about preparing for meditation right like stilling your body so that you could have some kind of connection with your inner life and your inner work and I I've, I felt with Matthew that that you know because nerve endings don't get in the way that can, I mean, that he may, has a more direct connection to that impulse. And I, I mean, I'm hearing, I feel that is also your experience as well. He, <laughs> he has said that to me. Mm-hmm. That um, I, one day he, he came over. Um, this was kind of, it was kind of fun because he came over after having a cellist in the yoga class that he was teaching. And this cellist, started playing the class for them. So he was perceiving what was going on really? in the class. So the music was following. So he was, he was improvising, yes. Uh-huh. Following the, the um, rhythm mm-hmm. and the flow of, of the class, of the practice, uh, is probably a better word. And Matt was just really jazzed by this. He was really excited about yeah. it. And the more he talked, the more I realized that he didn't really have that musical sense of why this was touching him. So I put on, uh, I found a YouTube video of Jacqueline Dupre, great cellist who um, had multiple sclerosis mm-hmm. and, you know, which just ended her career. But oh, she was so wonderful when she played. And we started watching her and you know, Matt talks a lot about the spine. The spine, yes. The spine. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, as we watched the cello, you see sitting out in front of Jacqueline Dupre, the spine mm. and the body. Mm. And you see the, you see the sound coming up out of the body. And suddenly you realize that there is this connection. 
that you're just not aware of mm-hmm. unless you're practicing. Mm-hmm. That connection to me is is almost superhuman. And in many ways, it has allowed me, especially in the last two years, as the physical challenges of ALS have become greater and greater, it has allowed me to remain engaged when I might have pulled back. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yoga has been a great Which gift. could seem so counterintuitive. Doesn't right? it, though? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so this is so wonderful. I just wanted to do a couple more questions, just maybe ten or fifteen more minutes. And if you want to stop again, we will. But I'm, I'm doing okay. Here. Good. Okay. You know, um, uh, the I, I, I want to talk about a love, you know, caregiving and love, and I think love is probably as hard to do justice to in words as religion is, you know, if you try to talk about something like this head on. You just don't get there. And it sounds trite and it's not, but um I think some of uh, the way you've spoken about your experience with ALS uh and written about it, you know, you're very attentive to, you know, the the burden of this, the hardness of it, the hardness of it. And, you know, Ev is sitting right here next to you. You know, there's this line in your book, I have seen the grimness that creeps into the face of the caregiver. That's a very stark sentence. Um, I, I don't know. I just kind of want to throw that out there about what, you know, love in its fullness, you know, what you've learned. There's a place where you say the opposite of love is not hate, it is fear. And I wonder if that also applies to just the kind of intimate love of a marriage in this kind of passage through life. And I'm interested, Ev, if you... Do you want to go ahead with that one? Why don't you start and I'll chime in. Okay. Ev and I have been lovers for 33 years in every sense of the word. And I I was so afraid after I was diagnosed of what this would do to that love. I I couldn't imagine an existence that, and, and this is one of the one of the great gifts of my life is that I would get up in the morning and every day I realized I was more in love with my spouse than I was the day before. I, and this is a great gift. <laughs> there are very few people I know who can say that, but I was so afraid that ALS would take that away. And then I began to pay attention to the just the physical and emotional toll that it takes on anyone that gives care. And I knew this logically, I knew it rationally, but the first time it was demonstrated to be really um, concretely demonstrated What's not with Ev? It was with a hired caregiver who had uh, 
her family was in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. She went back to Nigeria over Christmas, and she was gone for six weeks. When she came back, of course, I didn't just stop. The progression didn't just stop. So she came back, and I could tell that she was she was really surprised by what had happened in the six weeks before. And I don't really even remember what it was. But suddenly, the company pulled her off of, from caregiving. Mm. I believe that what she did was tell her company she couldn't handle it. Mm. She couldn't take watching that progression. Mm. You get close to your caregivers. And a disease like this is really hard on them. I saw this happen, and I thought to myself, my God, if this is happening to a person that I don't really even know, what's it doing to F? And so we've, I think we've tried. I, we talk about it. We talk about it a lot. It is really hard. It's hard today. It will be hard tonight. It will get harder tomorrow. But what we've tried to do is to at least pay attention to that. And what I, what I have had to understand, and again, this goes back to dis-ease, is that ALS isn't about me. It's, all, it's splashed all over my family, mm. all over my friends, all over my colleagues. It, it hurts them just as it hurts me. I actually probably am doing better than my caregivers are. <laughs> because, mm-hmm. because my path is set. They're never quite sure what they're going to face. So I have come to this point where I, I try to be hypersensitive to it, and yet... It's still very difficult. Mm-hmm. And at the end, every morning I wake up and I'm more in love with her than I was the day before. <laughs> Even when I crab at you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you, want to, do you want to add anything to that? I am just so grateful that Bruce is Bruce. And I think the the fear when this first began the reading that we did I read all the worst case scenarios that uh, I read a lot of for, from other caregivers who said that the person who they were now living with with ALS was not a person they knew or even liked that the disease changed them into such bitter, angry, depressed people um, that they didn't recognize their loved ones anymore. And I think that was the fear mm-hmm. that um, just grabbed me at the, in the gut level. And I basically got sick for a couple weeks and didn't get out of bed. But um, I remember a conversation we had early on where you looked at me and you said, you have not seen Bruce Kramer do ALS, and I promise you. It's going to be okay. And 
I didn't know if I was going to be okay, so I decided that, by golly, if he's going to be okay and he's got the disease, I'm going to be okay. So I think we've both been in training. I immediately went out and got a counselor and um, started on self-care. A very wise person told me early on that Bruce is going to get all the care he needs, but you (laughs) won't. People will forget about you, so you need to take care of yourself. And so we've been in training. I never did yoga before all of this, and that was a recommendation of my counselor. And meditation is something I started to study last year. And um, any little thing that will help me keep my balance is going to be ultimately good for you, too. You, you know when I've had a good day. I do. <laughs> and I when do. I've had a day where I haven't had a chance to exercise or do yoga or meditate, you also know. Yeah. Or play the piano. Or play the piano. The things that feed my soul have to still happen, or I'm no good for myself or for Bruce. And I see my own responsibility in that of encouraging her to do so. Right. Um, right. That's very clear that you... That I, I have to be... You know, just as Ev has my back, I have to have her back. Yeah. And again, you know, when you think about that, that mutual dependency, that uh, in many ways that defines some of the most beautiful humanity that we're capable of. And uh, yes, we were mutually dependent before, but now with this other this other in the room with us. Mm. Um, that mutual dependency has to continue to grow day to day because things shift and things change pretty quickly. So the caregiving piece of this, I, in, in the book I write, I, I have a chapter that I called um, The Handbook for the Recently Diseased. Yeah. Um, it's a play off of Beetlejuice, if you remember the handbook for the recently deceased. <laughs> right. But um, but in that handbook, one of my little admonishments is, it's not all about you. And uh, that I, I have to I have to keep telling myself that. But in the long run, it's really paid off. I think for both of us. You know, I I was with uh, my college roommate last weekend in Boston and she's a doctor and we were talking about how I was thinking about this a lot oh we were talking about friends of ours who've had you know adult children who have mental some kind of mental collapse and come live at home and uh, I don't know uh, people who have post-traumatic stress for all kinds of reasons that don't have to do with going war, but including war. Um, how we're so aware of sports injuries, how we're so aware of mental illness and addiction. And on the one hand, I think we can have a sense that things are spiraling out of control and we're sicker than we ever were before. But I actually sense that what's happening is that we just were in a we were in all kinds of closets about all kinds of things before. You didn't hear these stories. People didn't talk about what was going on with their children, or you know, somebody like you with ALS did not have a blog. Um, 
I don't know. I just uh, and I you know, was kept thinking about it, uh, getting ready to see you. you know, you know the way you've told your story and shared it and made it part of our you know of a of a larger vocabulary and experience. Do do you think about that? I mean, it, it it's kind of a it's kind of what we talked about right at the beginning of what you've learned that and it's it's about the disease, right? It's about somehow that these things that we carry that go wrong are what make us who we are and somehow I feel like collectively we're also if not acknowledging that necessarily we're, so, we're, so, we're bringing that we're bringing, we're opening that up tried to think about how to say this exactly I I uh, I I've always believed that humans should care for humans, that we should um, we should foster compassion in each other. Um, I suppose you could say I was a good white male liberal, but um, what what I've realized is that these gifts that come. The, the greatest gift is that you have the opportunity to become authentic and that transparency actually is just a way into that authenticity. But you know, even that language, those words, authenticity and transparency, they're kind of new. We're all using them now. That's true. But they're new. They're, they're, they've become part of the vocabulary. Right. They have become that way. But... Uh, I'd go back to the choice. We're all given choices. And um, I, I think a really good example of the choice is what happens when a person is diagnosed with dementia. Dementia, um, dementia is something that, it, while it has a predictable path, it's very unpredictable in how it manifests itself. And yet the people that are probably the most upset about dementia are the people that are around it, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. the person with it. And right. in fact, if you treat the, the person with it with respect and, and a quiet love and a sense of that um, it's okay, um, that person generally lives pretty happily. The problem with it is with the adult children who don't have mom anymore. Mm-hmm. The problem with it is with the colleagues who just can't believe what happened to Bill. You know, and and the thing is, is that we never used to talk about that. Right. But now, um, I think partly just because of the fact that we are uh, the generation now that is being that is going to be more prone to illness and disease is also a generation that that um, has in their background at least some of us believed that we should speak truth to power mm-hmm. that we should mm-hmm. uh, we should rather than uh, run away from uh, 
the fact that the CIA has been torturing people, you have to say it. You have to acknowledge that truth or you don't get better. And so, um, and so I think that that ethos is probably in the, some of our generation, not everyone, mm-hmm. but some of us. But I also think there's another piece to this. And that other piece of it is that uh, you become you become hyper aware with when you are diagnosed with something like ALS that you could either be honest or you could lie through your teeth and you could lie and lie and lie and everybody knows you're lying so why not choose honesty and I think that that is part of what helps people to talk about this it's a logical rational choice to be honest now to take down the facades and say this is what it is and this is who I am so yes I think we talk about it more but I think we're also aware of the choices we're given right um, I love the way you write and talk about all the life-giving things that you've done and that you're just experiencing from, you know, skydiving <laughs> to your new granddaughter. Um, here's, a, here's something you wrote. Um, Before ALS, I could see my plans opening into limitless vistas. Now I am cured of planning. Um, I'd like you to say just a little bit about that and also what is implied in that. No, sorry, you know what? That's not what I, because I want to be, I think that's, I'm just going to say that. It's a great statement. Now I am cured of planning. You also wrote this. In my fourth summer of ALS, which would be now, right, or this last summer, I am healed by music and vulnerability. Um, and, I, and I and I love that, and I'd like you to just talk a little bit more about that, and also what it implies about the meaning of the word healed. Healing comes in many guises. We're healed by um, just the touch of a friend. We're healed by uh, the hug of a child. And healing does not imply that your life is suddenly going to lose all of the struggle all of the challenge. What it does instead is it strengthens us for what is next. But to be open to healing means to be vulnerable. And I I think if you look at me, you know I'm what they would call a vulnerable adult. Um, 
The cat doesn't even listen to me here. <laughs> there, I have, I have no real sense of um, real sense of control anymore. And so, I, again, the choice could be to resent this, to be frustrated by it. And there are times when I, uh, I promise. But I think the greater choice is the fact that once you embrace your vulnerability, you are open to such beauty. And in the end, is this one of the things that truly makes us human? The ability to make, to perceive, uh, to live in beauty. For me, I'm a musician. I'll always have the soul of a musician. And because of that, music heals me. If I am finding myself anxious or find myself in a space where I know I'd better, I'd better get a hold of this, I find that listening to music is one of my best strategies. And so music is a healing activity. But if you talk to Matthew Sanford, for him, visual art just opens up that same sense of healing. Mm. And I, I, I know so many people who are artists in their own right, and they really are not themselves until they are in that artistic mode, either listening, perceiving, or actually making the art. I find that to be, I, I, I feel like I'm just lucky that I had that gift because in many ways it has helped me to understand how to, how to do this hmm. and do it in the most humane way possible. And that is healing. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you'd want to add? That feels really important, really essential to this. You know, um, the only the only thing that I it's not really adding, Krista. It's more um, maybe it's more reinforcing. A lot of the, a lot of my friends ask me, um, "Where do you think you're going to go from here?" What do you think it looks like? What's it going to be like? And um, which is just a question we know how to ask, right? Right, yeah. right. I can tell you that I feel um, the presence of loved ones that have gone before me. I can tell you that I. There are days when I have visions and I don't even realize that I'm having it until it suddenly strikes me that 
I haven't thought of that person, seen that person in years. And what I've been told, what I have perceived in that experience, is there's no reason to be afraid. That we, we can have great faith in this life that we are given, and we do a relatively good job with the birth and the life. But the death is the greatest part of it. The death is the final gift. And we are so avoidant, so frightened of what death might mean. When you say the greatest part of it, what do you mean? Earlier I said to you, that in this practice of yoga, I had delved down into a space where I perceived this great pool of gratitude and sadness. And don't mix sadness up with depression or despair. Mm -hmm. All sadness is, is a way of sensitizing you to what really matters, what's really meaningful. And death does that. I see my death. It looms in front of me sooner than I would like. But because it's there, because we live with that, I am so grateful for just this moment, for this time together. And that is a great gift. And by embracing that, I realize there's nothing to be afraid of. And that's what I would add. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a real privilege to have this time with you. Well, the privilege is mine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> How'd we do? Yeah. Yeah, just amazing. It's a great gift. It is a great gift, yeah. It is. Thank you for uh, mm-hmm. thank you for doing this. Mm-hmm. I uh, I've always wanted to meet you. <laughs> you came up with a good plan. Yeah. <laughs> Four years ago I thought Sneak How can I meet Chris Tippin? <laughs> I know I'll get ALS. <laughs> and you know, the book is wonderful. Thank you. It really is. It's wonderful. We, um, I don't think I'd have written it without Kathy helping. Yeah. She kind of pushed it. And, uh, and then, uh, I realized that I really needed her to be every man, to write her own part of this, and then allow me to riff off of that. And so it was, it was really um, 
just really gratifying to work with her on it. Do you have a... I know you said that, I'm taking notes for you, that your favorite piece of music is Bach's uh, B minor mass. Oh, yeah, it's in the block. And do you have a... Um, is there a certain performance of that or... Oh, yeah. Conductor or... Yeah. There is a... Uh, there's a performance that... Uh, when did it come out? Next year. It's by a group called the Dunedin Consort, D-U-N-E-D-I-N. You know that? Yeah, okay, good. Um, And what's so interesting about it is they only have one singer per part. So the most singers they have ever singing it are ten. And (laughs) their approach to it is just, oh, it's just amazing. But... um, I love in that the um, there there are specific choruses that because it's so clean, you're not trying to get a whole group of uh, you know twenty sopranos to all sing the same way. Because of the cleanliness of it, the credo, the I believe, just comes out as this enormous statement of faith. And the um, the crucifixus, which um, has, I don't think you, I, I don't think you understand the crucifixus without hearing the at resurrexit following, because the crucifixus winds down. It's this ostinato bass that continues to just keep going down, and down, and down, and then all of a sudden. There's this G major um, leap by the trumpets, and the choir sings at resurrects it. It's just, it's just enormously powerful. Mm-hmm. But this particular recording really breaks it out. Mm-hmm. I just love that recording. Okay, we'll find it. And um, and also Jacqueline to pray. Is there a particular recording? By oh, that you um, gosh. <laughs> You can think about it to an email. Maybe. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can. Um, you know, just about anything yeah, that she plays with Dan- with her husband Daniel Barrymore right, right. is remarkable mm-hmm. because you know they're not just playing music; they're making love. It's really, <laughs> really hypersexual. It's so incredible. Yeah, she's so the way that the two of them. Passionate. Yes, it's so physical. It you know, is. You're so right. It's so her. Playing. Well, that's why I wanted to show. That's why I showed Matt Jacqueline to pray because mm-hmm. when the two of them are playing together, oh, so I mean, you just choose anything you want. The. the um, the Dvorak, I think, is really good. The Dvorak uh, cello sonata. Uh, but, um, shoot, just do a YouTube search, you'll find her. <laughs> I, I want to ask one more music question. Was there a piece that you, was your favorite to conduct? To be in front mm-hmm. of a choir? Mm-hmm. Oh. That's probably hard to narrow down. I bet it was Messiah. You know, oh. Messiah. You loved Messiah. I probably conducted Messiah probably conducted 40 performances of Messiah in my lifetime. And I always liked doing it because when I would be with a choir, they thought they knew how it went. 
and you know they've sung it a million times, and all of them have. Sir Thomas Beecham and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir sitting in their in their heads. But here we are, and I'm trying to get them up on their toes to dance. And once you get them dancing, what an incredible experience! So I I think I enjoyed doing Messiah because. In a way, it was a lot like, I think it's one of the reasons why ALS has been the way it's been for me. You take something, life, that is a node, and then you dance it. And you make it something that's far beyond. And I, I would say to the choir, hear that spot right there. Hear what you did right there. That was the face of God. Shines on you, and you could just feel them take that in. So yes, I mean I loved give me a piece of music and I'd make it something I loved. But I really enjoyed doing that with Messiah. Hmm. Hmm. I'm really glad we asked. I'm glad we asked. Somebody, recorded that too. Is somebody here? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought that was my what time phone. is it? It's not my phone. Three thirty. Who's coming? I-